I mean, I do say to people, do you need this to be clean? And if they do, then I can do like a, a PG version, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I worked in burlesque long enough to know when you have to ask what your audience need and want. But it's, <laughs> you get a much better version of me when I can just say, bloody bastard bugger, ass fuck, cunt, piss. Oh, they're it's beautiful. much better. See, when you say them, <laughs> I see them embroidered on pillows. These beautiful <laughs> curse words sound so elegant. History, I'd like to... Follow me down the rabbit hole. History, I'd like to. Frankly, I want to know. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Hilf. History, I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody. And we are together in the den. That's the Deluxe Edition Network. To find more great podcasts in the den, click the link in our show notes or go to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Now, my hilf today is Alan Turing, a young mathematician in London at the outbreak of World War II who became a key figure in breaking the top-secret Nazi encryption machine known as Enigma. Oh, now, he is widely considered now to have likely been autistic at a time when there was no diagnosis for such a thing, and he was gay at a time when there was a diagnosis for such a thing. And he is a fascinating figure. I mean, he invented artificial intelligence, you guys. <laughs> now, my guest for this episode is Heidi Maver, who is herself autistic, is the mother of an autistic son, and the author of a best-selling book called your child is not broken. And we recorded this remotely. She lives in England and I'm in Los Angeles. And it was our first meeting after having only exchanged like a few emails and voice messages. And I think you'll join me in falling head over heels in love with her. <laughs> Let's get started. <laughs> you sent me a message after your assistant had sent me your one sheet sort of laying out your biography and your credits and stuff and you were like oh dawn i i'm afraid that you're gonna think that i'm fancy and serious and i want you to know i want to drink with you and also i used to run a burlesque show <laughs> i was so worried you were gonna think i was like really stuffy and british oh, i was on. like i needed to know that i used to get my boobs out for paying customers and oh. then she might like relax into it a bit oh god i don't know what I've, makes me feel better about that 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 you did show your tits to people for paying probably and that you know like that is just a wonderful thing to know about you or that you believe that this is something that will endear me calm me down make me feel more comfortable that oh, i can really and it's you're right you're right i've but. listened to every single episode of health i know <sighs> That that's that's a way to like be like oh yeah this this bitch <laughs> is cool. Honest to God, I'm properly, I'm a like, I'm a bit of a fangirl, and this is my very favorite podcast. I tell everybody to listen to it, oh. and I wait for it coming out. It needs to be more than once a fortnight, but I know you've got shit to read and that and a life to have and <laughs> all that in between. But yes, this feels like such a treat because I feel like I'm getting my very own one-to-one -one episode. Oh. I'm so excited. I've been telling everybody. Oh, <laughs> so Heidi, this, it fills my heart 
to hear it. Thank you so much. Because uh, it, first of all, I love this podcast too. It's so much fun to do. And I'm so grateful that I have people who love it. And that's why I'm able to do it. But I'm a fan too, man. Like I dug into your stuff. I've read most of your book. I will full disclosure. Yeah. I haven't finished it. Um, but I, I think you are marvelous. And so, man, like mutual love. Yeah, man. Mutual appreciation. <laughs> Obviously... I've got a cup of Yorkshire tea, just milk, no sugar, obviously, because in England we do. Now, when you say obviously, it's because we are recording remotely. You are currently, you're in the UK. Yeah. Can you give us the, give us the zoom on the map? Where are you specifically in the UK? I live about 45 minutes from where the Bronte sisters grew up uh, ah. and where Wuthering Heights was written. <gasps> and I live about 40 minutes from Whitby where um, Frankenstein is set, you know, the... Oh. Yeah. <laughs> See, I feel like I'm just sitting here drinking bourbon like a dummy. Well, I did also bring a little stash down here of um, <laughs> Yorkshire, Yorkshire gin. Okay. So, I like how local you keep it. I'm proper local. It's a local gin for local people. So this is Slingsby gin that is brewed just up the road. Brewed, distilled, <sighs> made distilled. just up the road. It's gooseberry gin. Oh, my God, Dawn, it's freaking incredible. So I'll oh. be cracking that open shortly. I'm Yorkshire till I die. Yorkshire till I die. Well, I am just so glad that you're here. I am having, uh, already having such a blast. And I told you that I read some of your book. You are the author of Your Child Is Not Broken, How to Parent Your Neurodivergent Child Without Losing Your Marbles. It was published uh january 2022 so just about two years ago and um it, it generally discusses your journey with your son theo who uh hit a wall in the public school system so mm -hmm. scary and you had gone on this journey to try to find help for him and get him kind of back on the saddle right before sort of coming to terms with the fact that the saddle the fucking saddle is the you know yeah. what's broken and during the course of his diagnosis you yourself uh, were diagnosed as being on the uh, autism, uh, autism spectrum, and you were 44 years old at the time. What is that like <laughs> to, to find yourself having a definition for something that you may have considered just a personality quirk? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it's uh, in equal measure, absolutely glorious and a total head fuck. Mm. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you kind of have an explanation for lots of the things that you haven't understood about yourself and the world and how you fit in the world or not and and why you found some things so incredibly difficult for so long and then you also have to reorganize everything you've ever thought about your life the mm. world and everything in it <laughs> and your place and Wow. There's a lot of refiling of experiences and thinking, oh, right, okay, well, the reason that that happened, you know, hmm. the reason I found myself in that situation was because I had all this, you know, unmet need and I wasn't really aware of how to ask for what I needed. But generally, and like, it's it's been an incredibly positive experience for us both and we're both able to understand ourselves a lot better and advocate for our needs a lot better. Um, and I kind of get it now whereas yeah. I always felt like I was some kind of freaky alien mm. and just was like what is going genuinely and I have this conversation with autistic people quite regularly when I say I thought I was an alien and they're like me too <laughs> turns out we're not aliens we're just autistic <laughs> so, <laughs> and were you uh, like kind of like damn 
alien would have been so fun. I mean, I'm not entirely sure I'm not an alien. If as a mothership well. comes and is like, all y'all get on board, you'll be like, they mean me. I don't know how I know they yeah, mean yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. Out okay. of the way. They came to clean me up. Yeah, yeah, totally. This seems to me like it would be such difficult and unsteady ground for any individual to suddenly sort of find themselves here. But then as a mother who is simultaneously navigating or helping your, your son navigate the same unsteady ground that you've just found mm. yourself on has to be, uh, I would, I would go ahead and say book worthy. You know what I mean? Like no oh, wonder yeah. you had to share this experience. It's so necessary. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I was really stunned and, and saddened by how often in your book you talk about the response generally being toughen up yourself and, and just toughen up your child. It's, it's this general mm. idea that you are consciously or unconsciously and deliberately or, or, or by, you know, by accident, just not doing it. You're just not mm -hmm. doing the thing you're supposed to do. And, and it sounds so much like when I hear people with like addiction, for example, mm -hmm. who just keep saying, stop drinking just try harder. and let's just pretend that the thing I'm telling you is always the right way, which you and I both know that a lot of times you're getting advice that no is also not great advice, but let's just pretend that you and I both agree that what you're telling me to do is the best possible thing to do. I can't, it's not happening. I can't do it. Right. It's yeah. just not happening. And it, and it isn't an issue of morality or strength or willpower. There has to be something else. And I feel like as we sort of culturally become aware of neurodivergency, we find ourselves using a similar, similar vocabulary to every sort of other abled encounter we have, which is like, yes, logic, reason, force. Mm. Even these three things in combination will not work. You know what I mean? No. So what did you ultimately say? What do you ultimately say still to individuals or power structures that are going to say, it's just time to buckle down or accusing uh, a spectrum diagnosis as a, an excuse to get out of something? You know what I mean? Yeah. I think, um, I mean, after I've told them to fuck off and then fuck off a lot more, I then think, well, I should maybe try and articulate myself a little better. That pisses people right off. Um, but I I think, so I also sometimes use a mobility aid. I sometimes use a wheelchair because I have a chronic fatigue condition. And so I use the analogy of, would you ever, if someone was using a wheelchair, would you roll them to the bottom of a set of stairs and say to them, go on, just try just mm -hmm. get out and walk, you know, just go on, give it your best shot. You're not trying hard enough. If you believe it, you can, mm -hmm. you know, and some assholes would do that, but sure. the majority of people wouldn't, but it's just reminding people that, you know, neurodivergence is an invisible disability and it is a disability. You know, we are disabled, not so much by our uh, neurotype as such, although that definitely can be disabling, but as much of we're in a world that wasn't built for us. Mm. And I think, it's one of those things where, you know, and I was guilty of this, before you have an autistic person in your life or know that you have an autistic person in your life, you have so many stereotypical ideas about what that is, what that looks like, how that manifests. And you all always have that kind of like, oh, well, that's very other. Mm. And then I think I just want, really want to say to people, you know, yes, I'm autistic and I'm a human being mm. and I require and demand and expect and deserve the same level of compassion, respect, dignity, consideration as you would give to any other human being. Right. You know, so. 
Yeah. And fuck off. And <laughs> and in case I wasn't perfectly clear when I began, you can also go fuck yourself. Well, and I think that you also use that analogy of the person in a wheelchair at the bottom of the stairs. We also live in a world where if the individual in that chair, say, mm -hmm. a, you know, a young man with no legs, did look at you and go, fucking A right, I can do this, and crawled on their elbows to the top oh, of that them. staircase yeah, yeah. and got mm -hmm. up there with their chest covered in splinters and their elbows worn down to the bones, we'd go, good job. Yeah. You Let's did it. Let's put it on YouTube. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. you're such an inspiration. And we then have this complicated situation where that person is, you know, heaved bloody and hurt back into their chair with a medal and think, okay, I guess this mm -hmm. is a... Uh, this is what they mean. And, and you know, it's, it's obviously can be a much better way. It's still, we've still got such a long way to go in terms of people understand. The thing is with disability, any kind of disability, is that it's the only, inverted commas, disadvantage that you could wake up tomorrow and have mm -hmm. that you didn't have the day before. Mm -hmm. Like you, anything could happen to you overnight or tomorrow or whatever, and, and you, could, you could be disabled. And I and and it makes me like I just think that's mad that people aren't more accommodating. But I think that's maybe why because of the fear of it. Absolutely, like we're only ever an accident away, a moment away. And you know, Heidi, it's more than that. Is it's inevitable if we're lucky enough yeah. to get old? And some of us have been temporarily disabled. Sure. Who you know? I mean, I remember you know when I had my daughter. And there were, it wasn't long. I was very lucky. It was a couple of weeks. But yeah, I would look at every elevated curb. And mm -hmm. in addition to having to get my fucking carcass up this thing, was having to lift a child over it or to get the front wheels of a stroller over it. And I thought, why mm -hmm. can't we fucking, what the fuck, man? You know? Yeah. Um, but no, I think I think it's tied up in just people's idea of, they. we don't know how afraid we are of death. We're we're, sure. we're we're sort of unable to even sort of acknowledge that we it isn't we go yeah 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 no I know I know I know I know totally gonna die someday I'm like this finite creature and I will one day step into the oblivion I totally get it I'm totally fine with it it's like no you don't and no you aren't uh -uh. <laughs> and none of us uh -uh. are and one of the reasons one of the things one of the ways that's gonna manifest is you're gonna see an old and or disabled person and you're gonna go thank god this not yeah. me and you're gonna move mm -hmm. on with your life mm -hmm. you know yeah um and and in this world one of the other things in addition to your amazing book which by the way sell yourself a little honey because i said this was bestseller and i know that it is a top seller on amazon it was on the sunday morning bestseller. can you give the us times bestseller yeah. Which, yeah it's the equivalent of like having a new york times bestseller yeah. but like in england so it's more dignified. <laughs> <laughs> love that you're a fan. It means the world. And here's the part you know very well, girl. I'm going to talk to you about my sources. Oh, yes. Bring it up. And my plan for the thorough fucking that we are going to be doing of our guy, Alan Turing. And what a joy to research this oh, guy. Uh, this is just a short uh, kind of biography called Enigma by Anna Ravel. And it was a great just sort of, you know, bare bones, beginning to end, give the broad sweeps of his life the big moments the lily pad moments up to his tragic death um amazing documentaries have been made throughout the years on him um i really enjoyed alan turing the scientist who saved the allies 
which does some discussions on his whole life, but focuses primarily on the work that he did on Enigma during World War II. Um, amazing essay. There'll be links, by the way, of course, to all this stuff in our show notes. Um, an essay in Autism Parent Magazine that like really nice. discussed touring and autism from like an autistic person's point of view, but also examining the fact that that t- Turing's relationship to autism was all posthumous. And so how does, uh. how did that diagnosis happen and what tools did they use to, to come to a pretty universally accepted conclusion that he, he would have been diagnosed as somewhere on the, uh, as a neurodivergent mind. Um, and then oh, after I had finished all my research, when there's a great movie about the subject and yeah. I'm going to help, like when there's one out there as, and I haven't seen it yet, it is such a treat for me when I finish all my research and I've been a good little historian and I've gotten my episode all prepped. Then I sit down and watch the movie. Now I'll watch the film. <laughs> now I watch the film because, you know, I fucking love movies. And one of the things I love about movies is they're not documentaries and they aren't mm-hmm. pretending to be a documentary. So I always look at the movie as sort of like if, if the history book was left outside um, covered in psychedelic mushrooms and mm-hmm. could dream what would the history dream itself to be? You know what I mean? And in in this case, we are very lucky to have a phenomenal movie called The Imitation Game um, that came out in 2014 starring Benedict Cumberpatch, who I believe is Chuck's notes. Yep, he's English. You said his name wrong. In our house, his name is Bendyback Cummerbund. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I see. And I would imagine if you yelled that loud enough, he'd turn around. And that's a fact. Uh, I think I saw him on a TV program once where he was talking about all the different ways that people say his name. And they and people do that. They do like the da 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 <laughs> but like with a B and a C. So, yeah. Then you back say come up on that. Oh, God. Okay. Mm. Listen, from now on, if it, when he comes up, I'm going to just point to you. And it's your job to say his name because I don't want to mispronounce it. Yeah. I don't want to mispronounce it again. I'd be <laughs> how embarrassing. Um, Sorry, Benedict. I'm sure he's listening. I'm yeah. sure he's a big fan. Well, you know, our famous Benedict in America is kind of a cunt. Benedict whom? Benedict Arnold. I don't know who that is. Benedict Arnold was the greatest traitor in American history. He tried to sell West Point, essentially, to the English during the Revolutionary War. He was like George Washington's top general and best friend. And we probably would have had President Arnold. You know, like it would have been Arnold Elementary School and Arnold, like he would have been a founding father, but he was a fucking traitor. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. No, our Benedict is far superior. Yeah, indeed. We're we're very fond of him. So given all of the research and all of this stuff, and knowing that you have, you know, your own wealth of knowledge on on this subject, here's my plan for the Mm. fucking of Alan Turing. Um, He is, I feel like, himself just a very deep well. So what I'm going to do is drop buckets down into that well (laughs) containers if you will containers of interest and um i'm calling them the fuck it buckets (laughs) nice okay there's four (laughs) there's four of them and what we're gonna do is i'm gonna tell you what the buckets are and then you choose the bucket and then we fuck it and we can go in any order all right so bucket number one is he cracked that the nazi encryption code called enigma leading, helping lead the Allies to victory, of course, in World War II. That's bucket number one, all the history surrounding that. Bucket, bucket number two. Um, That Turing was diagnosed posthumously with autism 
and how the experts who examined his biography and his notes and his letters ultimately came to the conclusion that he was autistic and how how that worked out. Um, Bucket number three is he was gay. He was punished under the same statute that got Oscar Wilde, gross indecency. Um, And he, at the time of his sentencing, had a choice between imprisonment or chemical castration. Um, Mm. And he chose castration, which may or may not have contributed to his early death, which may or may not have been suicide. And so we'll discuss that. And Mm. then bucket bucket number four is the work after Enigma that he did in artificial intelligence as the father slash mother of AI. And the crazy fucking inverse. Like he was the one who invented that way that like humans could tell if they were talking to a computer, but then the real meta mind fuck of when computers started a test to determine whether you are a computer and it's all very cool and trippy. He's responsible for, I am not a robot. That's basically Alan's fault. Exactly. (laughs) Crack the Enigma code, but can't find a stop sign. Sucker. Yeah. Um, So those are our bucket buckets. What do you think? These are great bucket buckets. I'm very excited. Okay. I think we should start with the nice light stuff. Let's start with the autism stuff. Let's Great. talk about the autism. Great. And then let's and then let's like grow from there. Because I think sometimes people, when they hear you're autistic, they like want to get all the detail of that first before they can take anything else you say seriously. So let's get that out of the way. Great. And let's and I also think it's so fascinating how we have this thing with with him more than maybe many many historical figures where we have broadly accepted that he was autistic and mm-hmm. there's this kind of thing of oh we shouldn't really posthumously like diagnose people but with him we're kind of all agreed oh yeah he was definitely one of ours so <laughs> i'd like to nickname this bucket neurokindred which was a term that i first heard in the introduction to your book it was written by christy forbes i just it made me And this is not the first time I've been just like a little jealous. (laughs) You know what I mean? Where I get like neuro kindred. That sounds, that sounds great. That was like when I briefly in high school, like after I watched Girl Interrupted, I was like, oh, I want to put cigarettes out on my arm and go to an insane asylum. And then they were like, "Mm." I just want to belong. You can just hang out in the art room and smoke cigarettes and you don't. I don't want to throw like a massive curveball slash grenade into the mix but dawn brody if you are not neurodivergent i will eat my motherfucking heart really my god yeah see and i I wouldn't have listened to every single episode of your podcast if you weren't one of ours (gasps) just saying i'm gonna open gin see this is what i oh the gin is being cracked people it is the crack (laughs) of dawn that is happening with this So do you recommend getting tested for autism? Because actually, honestly, what I'm afraid of is that I'll get super stoked and then I'll go in and they'll be like, nope, you're totally middle of the road, normal as the rest of them. And I'll be like, fuck. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to test myself for sure. To be genuinely serious, after the podcast, I'm going to send you a self-screening thing for Great. you to do so that you do it. And then you're like, oh, my God, I'm totally one of theirs. I'm neurokindred. <gasps> And then I'll just affirm the fuck out of you and say, don't worry about spending money on a private diagnosis. If you think you're one of ours, you're one of ours. One of Come ours. on in. One of ours. We'll okay, save great. you the money and the trouble. Okay. So. And then I'll get a t-shirt. Do I get like a card or a t-shirt or? Uh, would you like a certificate? Does it get me free parking no. places? Uh... <laughs> 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 
I mean, chaw. <laughs> okay. Regarding our, our guy, Alan Turing, as we have discussed, when he was growing up as a child in the 1920s, there... <laughs> There is no diagnosis for autism. I, I suspect they were diagnosing it much as they did where I grew up in rural Wisconsin, which is, what a weirdo, oddball, crueler words. But but more than that, there was also the sort of general understanding that your intelligence and your ability to be an intellectual elite also didn't really include math. Math wasn't even that valued. It was about language and classics. So th this is how we elevate people who are considered particularly intelligent and particularly smart is how well they can read, how much information they can retain, and how quickly they are able to be like, ah, oh, yes, that reminds me of Homer in the first part of the blah, or referencing biblical verses. This is what made you intelligent, right? And, and Alan Turing's mother, by all accounts, was a real cunt about this whole business. You have to give her some grace because she did not have your book. <laughs> I don't, you know, I'm sure if she had, she would have been phenomenal. It at could that. have been so different. Exactly. Um, but, but she just generally tried to force him into this very conventional mode. And so did the rest of the system in terms of the private boarding schools. And he, much like the analogy we talked about earlier with the guy crawling up the stairs on his elbows, Alan Turing did appear to have done some, some equivalent of that. And probably what a lot of neurodivergent people were doing at the time, which is just masking and figuring out a way to to get in there however the earliest account that i can find uh, feel free to tell me if you if you have more information about this about uh, an official sort of posthumous diagnosis of autism for alan turing came in 2003 um, and it was by henry o'connell and michael fitzgerald and they used what is called the goldberg criteria for asperger syndrome my understanding is that there are a variety of ways to be diagnosed as neurodivergent. Some are quote unquote official, some are medical and they, but this was their standard that they used. And again, I'd be very curious to know how what I'm about to explain compares to what you used for your own diagnosis and for Theo's and, and so on. Um, but they, they say there are essentially six specific symptoms that must be present for an autism diagnosis. These six symptoms may be present and your person is not autistic, but for someone to be diagnosed as autistic, these specific six, six symptoms have to be present. <clears throat> Number one, severe impairment in reciprocal social interaction, a.k.a. you're bad at parties. <laughs> it feels like a fancy way of being like, don't do shit right. Just kind of uh, uh, like missing social cues not making the right facial, whatever, just not doing the back and forth the way that everyone else is kind of used to the back and forth, right? <laughs> Got it. <party. laughs> Number two is called an all-absorbing narrow interest, a.k.a. dinosaurs, dinosaurs, nothing but dinosaurs, right? A.k.a. history, history, history. <laughs> Let's book it. Stop it. No, that doesn't count. <laughs> oh, and the first one, a.k.a. prefers to stand on stage with a microphone rather than having a two-way conversation. Keep going. Oh. oh. <laughs> okay, number three. <laughs> Tell uh, me when this gets Oh, no. <laughs> oh, God. Heidi, I'm not lying. This is the first time that I've looked at this list with a mirror. <laughs> number three, imposition of routines and interests on self or others, a.k.a. I said dinosaurs, dinosaurs, 
is a bike ride a dinosaur? <laughs> I feel like I might break you during this podcast recording. It's possible. It's possible. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, but in terms of like your Rain Man example, which you mentioned in your book, which was for most of our sort of Western popular culture, our collective introduction to what is autism was Rain Man. Mm-hmm. That obsessive repeat gotta have the one thing anything else sends you into sort of chaos right uh number four nonverbal communication problems aka what do i do with my hands my eyes my feet mm-hmm. my arms when you're talking uh number five speech and language problems aka where mm-hmm. is them they do a lot of this in the imitation game. I thought they did a, a nice, subtle representation of some speech and language problems with uh, the actor known as... Bendy Back Cummerbund. <laughs> who did when he would get heated and fu- would stutter. Had a, a stutter and sort of pressured speech and labored speech when he got emotional and, and heated. Um, and then number six is motor clumsiness, which I called AKA leave room for cream. <laughs> <laughs> Motor clumsiness. Something like, I can't remember what the number is, but it's something like 80% of autistic people have would would get a formal diagnosis of dyspraxia. We're all clumsy as fuck, basically. Sure. That's what that means. I certainly have fallen, but it was because LA sidewalks are like a game show. They are, <laughs> you know, elevate. It's ridiculous. And I uh, drink bourbon at 10 o'clock in the morning. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> What I found was wild about this list, especially the ways that we all sort of imagine they are displayed by people we know or even characters that we've seen represented, is that at the time that Alan Turing is not only alive, but doing some of his most important work, right? Oddballs and weirdos Mm -hmm. like him Mm -hmm. in Germany were being executed and put into concentration camps. And mm-hmm. individuals like him, of course, are being elevated and recruited to save, for lack of a better word, the world, right? Yeah. Keep that in mind because it made me feel, I was like, yeah, you know, that's great. But the treatment that he has after the war um, diminishes the glow of that yeah. comparison between what we like to believe is the good guys and the bad guys in this particular case. Yeah. Conflict. And we also have that a comparison with that now, whereby um, I hate functioning labels, but what people might call high functioning or lower support need autistics hmm. are considered more valuable, more palatable, um, you know, than people who have higher support needs or who might be defined as low functioning. You know, our non-speaking autistics mm-hmm. are seen in a very different way to those of us who do have verbal language. So that hasn't changed very much. It's about how helpful we are to the people, how inconvenient Mm. we are Mm. to the people we are around us or how helpful we are. It depends on how much respect and dignity we're afforded. Mm. That was amazing. Okay, so we've met you. We fucking love you. I'm going to tell you right now that you're a gilf, a guest I'd like to fuck. You're a gilf. You've listened to every episode. Have I called anybody a gilf yet? No, Word. I'm having a t-shirt made. I'm a gilf. And I'm sure that my listeners are like, oh yeah, we totally fuck Heidi. And you can. When we <laughs> come back, like you. Because we've got, we've got three more buckets that we got of fuckets. <laughs> so when we come back in our break, we'll get to those. Be right back. This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to Deluxe Edition Network. 
deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Face it, dating sucked in your 20s, gets worse in your 30s, and your 40s, forget it. It's a cesspool out there, and we're your flotation device. Join us weekly for saucy chat, ridiculous love gurus, and MILF-worthy fun to spice up your life. The MILF, Milf and, and Me Podcast. Every Wednesday on your favorite pod platform. And the MILFandMePod.com. The MILF, Milf and, and Me Podcast. Hey, friends, you've done it again. Okay, since I've started HILF, the audience has steadily grown and the downloads for each new episode meet or beat the previous ones. And like one of the things that that tells me is that generally when I got you, I keep you, which is so cool for me because it means I get to keep doing this. (laughs) And over time, some of you have chosen to leave a little cash on the nightstand and I appreciate it. (laughs) The latest comers to Patreon are Liza H, Nick N and Jennifer G. Oh, please join me in raising your next glass to them because they're raising a lot more than that around here. (laughs) If you'd like to jump in bed with us, have access to bonus episodes and hear your name here next time, yay! (laughs) Go to patreon.com slash podcast and then follow me, follow me, follow me, follow. started with four bucket buckets you selected i think very wisely as your first one let's cover the autism let's do the tism yeah which leaves us with enigma so gay and ai okay i think we do enigma next we've talked about his neurotype now we're going to pin down the why is this guy so important mm. and you know you said something earlier that has stuck with me which was regarding people on the autistic spectrum as valuable insofar as they are useful and applicable Mm. to our needs. And certainly among the reasons we're fucking our guy, Alan today and why he is known as a, is a historic figure. Why uh, the actor known as broccoli cucumber (laughs) played him in a, in an Oscar winning movie is because he and his specific set of skills were very much needed at a very specific time, and he was capital U useful. Before Britain declares war, not on the German people, but on the leaders of the Nazi regime. Now, I'm gonna talk a bit about Bletchley Park, and when you and I first started talking, you had just gone as a tourist to visit Bletchley Park. I have your photos, I have your voice recordings, (laughs) they are awesome, and I wanna hear about what it is like there on the ground, but just to give the folks who are listening who may have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about, I'm just kind of broad strokes of what this place is. Um, Bletchley Park is the name of a former private mansion estate where a very rich family (laughs) used to spend their Christmases fox hunting in the late 1800s. It was meant to look much older. It was sort of designed to look like this sort of Victorian Gothic Tudor Dutch like it's if you if you give a fuck about architecture, it's a bit of a mess. Oh, yeah. It's a bit of a sort of nouveau riche mm-hmm. mess. But yes, Americans go, oh my god, it's so old and it's so English. 
in 1938, a guy named Admiral Sir Hugh Sinclair, who's the head of the Secret Service in the UK, uh, M16, he buys this place with his own money because England's like, we can't afford it. <laughs> and so he gets it because he thinks it's so important that they have this code breaking school this like top secret code breaking school and this was a perfect not just it looked old in english which i'm sure it was great but the location 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 like bletchley park among other things is just at this ideal spot where it's not london because that's gonna get fucking bombed all the time i gotta turn the lights off all the time london's like not gonna be a great place it's also close to the train station that connects the oxford cambridge super close. university really close. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And this is where they suspect these kids, these students are going to be coming in here as we recruit them. Um, so it was just kind of great all the way around. What what is like aesthetically? What's it like? Was it was it visually beautiful? What you feel like being there? So the mansion, the house is really beautiful. It looks kind of like an old English boarding school and it's on a lake. Mm. It's really pretty. And then there mm. are loads of like little huts which is where they did the code breaking and where they like, they have like long corridors with rooms off them with different things in. No one lived on site. So everyone came in on buses or on the train. Keep in mind that everything we know about Bletchley Park and anything that we know about Alan Turing was top secret and completely confidential until the 1970s. Yeah. This this whole campus, of course, had to be top secret at the time. So so it wasn't like, this is the codebreaker school. This is where we're recruiting everyone to be a code. So they labeled it as a radio manufacturing company. And the cover story had to be believable and then a visible, you know. And they also, they did this thing where the first batch of people that arrived, they like told the locals that it was a hunting party. And like a load of people just arrived oh. and they were like, oh yes, they're here to hunt for the weekend. <laughs> Because they were like, like surveying like where they were going to build huts and what they were sure. going to do, and like all the locals just thought it was like this posh guy bringing people in to kill foxes. It's crazy. The foxes were like, I have to be honest, they're terrible at hunting. I haven't heard a single gunshot. There's no dogs. We already know there's going to be codes, and there's going to be a need for code breaking, because what World War One had utilized was the radio. And if you have any sort of interest in, like, historical warfare, it was, of course, this enormous deal that all of a sudden the general, the president, whoever's commanding the armed forces, could communicate instantly with their troops. That's fucking nuts, man. I mean, if you think about, like, the history of one of my big interests, the Revolutionary War in George Washington, so many chapters of fucking fascinating face melting american history are just individuals trying against all odds to get a message mm -hmm. from one place mm -hmm. to another right and even then one of the threats was that that message would be intercepted and that the wrong person would read that message that has been the case forever of course like all things in progression with the advancement comes the piracy mm -hmm. and anyone with a radio can send a message to the front lines and anyone with a radio can hear that message on the front lines. So the first element of code breaking necessary was was kind of what we had talked about earlier, where your where your expertise in the classics and in literature are going to come mm -hmm. in handy because we're going to use codes that are more like crossword mm -hmm. puzzles. Say, go tell Yurik, you know, we're going to attack in the Yurik front 
from Colossa. And somebody would be like, I know Yurik, a fucking Hamlet, that's a Danish, it's something in Denmark, right? So someone could sort of, with their understanding of literature, help crack a code. What becomes unique about this cat and mouse game of code breaking post-radio, post-World War One, that evolves in World War II, is a mathematics mm. code. A code that doesn't rely on human brain knowledge, human recognition of stories and characters and links in tales sort of knowledge, but math. And of course, as we're well aware now, and they were learning very well then, is that machines are fucking awful at comparing Henry III to Richard mm -hmm. III, but they're fucking awesome at math. <laughs> they can do that so much faster than we can, right? So when we get into this phase of World War II, the Germans introduce a real uber doozy of an encryption machine that they call Enigma. If you can imagine a, 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 an old classic typewriter that is slightly more boxy, it has one keypad that is lower and it has the 26 uh, you know, letter alphabet, which is a benefit as the English are trying to translate German because we do sh different languages, same alphabet. So that's great. And when you would press, let's say the message was, I love you. So I start to type I. And when I type I on the bottom keyboard, it goes through a series of electric channels and rotors, and another letter will illuminate on the top keyboard. So I press that to create this message. L will go through these things and encrypt a different level. But this, if I'd left the description there, it would seem very simple. That's a basic encryption. That is letter replacement. That is something that would take a minute to translate, but not long. A kid could do it, right? If every A is an L and every X is a Z, then I just go through and change it. But inside the electronics between those two keyboards are a series of rotors and electric wires that, turn, that each have that 26-letter alphabet as well. And they turn clockwise or counterclockwise at sort of, of an, uh, thousands of probabilities so that an I will not always be an I. An I will be something else the next time I type it. And it's the ability to mathematically predict and unravel what letter is what that becomes this mathematical seeming impossibility. And they have this thing where, uh, they had someone who read the message and told the, like the Enigma transcriber, what the code was for the encryption. And that person would then put it in the machine and then it would transmit. And the person at the other end would read that off, but they wouldn't have the code for the other end. So there was like an ingoing code and an outgoing code and they changed yes. every 24 hours. Right. Every night at midnight. <laughs> They both changed, which ultimately led to a millions of millions of millions of probabilities for both ends of encryption. It becomes certainly for me looking at something like this, I throw up my hands and use words like mm -hmm. impossible. Can't be done. That isn't the words you use in a world war scenario. You're like, how do we break this encryption and how can it be done? And once it became clear that this wasn't about your understanding of Richard III and Homer that was going to get us through this and that this was a mathematical situation, they turned to mathematical minds. And this is where we get our guy, Alan Turing. 
He comes into Bletchley Park shortly after the declaration of war, the official declaration of war, where there are already a series of teams working in a series of huts around the clock trying to crack these codes and trying to figure out how they can get through this Nazi German enigma machine. I'm just pulling a bit just heading Okay. Oh, this is fucking fascinating fucking espionage shit, Heidi, too, which I'm sure you read about, about, like, a, a, a German sub had been hit and was, like, sinking and was, like, about to sink, and we knew there was an Enigma machine on the sub, and this just, like, crazy fucking sexy spy shit where they, like, get to the sub before it sinks and somehow get in it and take the Enigma machine, like, oh! Like, if Alan Turing don't curl your toes, good it's news. It's James Bond, isn't it? So James Bond. You've got Alan Turing and a bunch of other code breakers. And goddamn, man. I mean, I could do a hilf on every code breaker who was right? there. And also, the code breaking population at Bletchley Park was 75% mm-hmm. female. And their recruiting tactics were astonishing. My personal favorite, it is represented in the movie The Imitation Game. They give the credit to Alan Turing for dramatic effect, but I don't think it was his idea. But in any event, they put out this ad in the newspaper because they can't be like, "If are you good at cracking codes? The war could use you. Like, this is all. Like, we have to, everything has to be obscured, right? So they put this pretty difficult crossword puzzle printed into the newspaper with this, like, fun font. <laughs> Not a war font, but like a wee. Oh, and it says, can you... <laughs> Comic Sans, exactly. Can you solve this crossword puzzle in 10 minutes or less? Oh, <laughs> neato. Call this number for an exciting job opportunity. So mechanics and housewives and a lot of black people, and when you're for the United States edition in particular, fill these crossword puzzles mm-hmm. out, call the number, show up at Bletchley Park, and are essentially told, you've just been recruited for, you know, Her Majesty's <laughs> Secret Service. And I just think what, I mean, just the cover stories for those mm-hmm. women alone must have been remarkable. I suspect its success required a lot of questions not being mm-hmm. asked. And no one knew what anyone else did either. It is a machine that is making these codes. And therefore, it has to be a machine and then a computer that breaks these down. If I can understand mathematics, to even describe the way that Alan Turing understood mathematics, like my toes have already come up to the line (laughs) of like my vocabulary, you know what I mean? But essentially, what he did was eliminate enough other possibilities. So one key element was... They realized that no letter would ever be encrypted as itself. So if it is an A in German, it will never come up as an A. And just in a world of millions of millions of millions of millions of millions of possibilities, that eliminates a ton in terms of what this message might say. So (laughs) exactly. And one of 26, one of four 26s, you know what I mean? But, But in terms of what Alan Turing was thinking when he built this machine, I don't understand using math I can't comprehend. That's one of the pieces of data that he entered, which is an A will never be an A. Okay. And that was key. The other thing that was key in this sort of puzzle unraveling was if they know, for example, how valuable it is to know the current day's Enigma encryption word for warning, they would set a landmine where they know there was a U-boat, where they know the U-boat would see the landmine before they hit it. 
and send a message that tells everybody, warning. Mm. Right? So we set deliberate landmines, knowing they're not going to explode, and then we just listen to see if we will be able to at least get the Enigma word for warning that day, and then we can do all the other stuff and enter that into you know, the giant thing, and that was very helpful. Also, there are some predictable phrases. For example, one particular uh, place is every morning at 6 a.m. sending out the weather report. So even though we don't know shit about fuck, we know that it's probably saying things like air pressure and temperature and wind velocity. So we can look for like really specific phrases within this encryption that might help us. That was incredible. And of course, the term Heil Hitler which is represented in the movie imitation game and they send it up. So again, the dream of the history, it's absolutely great, which is the irony of the fact that they are required to constantly say Heil Hitler gave them a real tool in decoding their encryptions by just looking for what might say Heil Hitler. Cause we know it's going to be present. Oh, I fucking love message. that. Like, they like Heil Hitler themselves I... out of having a top secret code. I love it. The benefits of Alan Turing and the other code breakers working with him in Hut 8 at Bletchley Park is difficult, of course, to be precise about. But we also can't help but ask, what if we hadn't had this code broken? What would have happened? What could have happened? The estimation that seems to be agreed upon by everybody is that it, if it didn't outright win the war, because it contributed so much to the success of D-Day and without the victory on Normandy Beach, would we have won the war? And the reason that D-Day was a success was because the code breakers were not only able to trick mm -hmm. the Germans into believing that the thrust of that invasion was happening in mm -hmm. Calais in England mm -hmm. and not in France on Normandy Beach. It wasn't just that they were able to dupe them but they were able to crack and read the private communications among the highest ranking members of the German military, the very highest members of the German military, which confirmed then that they had bought the dupe because even in their most private communication, they were talking about, yes, we're going to Kali and yes, they believed it, which gave us the confidence and the ability to move forward in that way. Most historians are uncomfortable <laughs> making big definitive statements like he won the war. But the most definitive statement that I heard was that Alan Turing and specifically his contribution in, in cracking the Enigma machine shortened World War II by two years, thereby saving thousands and thousands of lives. Fucking nuts. There is, of course, the V-Day, the celebrations at the conclusion of World War II. They destroy a lot of these machines. They burn a lot of their paperwork, and they are told as individuals, thank you so much. That was amazing. You, of course, cannot whisper a word of what you've done here to anyone ever. And they all got on that train that was so convenient to the area and went back to their lives. Can you imagine? Like, where have you been? Oh, <laughs> I've been fox hunting. <laughs> yeah, and they're like, where's the fox? And you'd be like, "We can you believe it? <laughs> Every day for three years, we never got one. <laughs> what, what was like, what, what stuck with you most having been on the spot 
as a tourist you know what i really like obviously it's all it's it's like staged <laughs> like there were cardigans like drawing pins to the back of chairs and stuff i was like oh, that's a nice cardigan <laughs> <laughs> but in kira his, knightley's cardigan yeah yeah in his office like you can go in his it's, I, t- I sent you pictures i think in his office mm-hmm. and on top of the um the like cupboard in the corner where he would hang his coat and stuff there was a pair of running shoes because he was a really keen athlete yes and like he was like an accomplished runner like he he almost qualified for the olympics yeah and that's what i was like oh like this man who was like incredibly serious and very dedicated to his work and actually more interested in like just the like that single-minded laser sharp focus that autistic people are criticized for that like oh i've got a thing in my mind and i'm not going to stop until it gets done and i'm sure there were other people on the team with him who were also autistic by the way but mm. he like he was so focused on that but i really that nod to and the way he regulated himself would be to put his mm. running shoes on and run around bletchley park like just to mm-hmm. get that energy out or so that was like a moment when i was like oh that i really liked how humanizing that was like yes to remember that this was a man who would probably feel all those pressures and then some and would need a way to unwind and the way he did that was by strapping on a pair of white plimsolls and running like his life depended on it i really yeah. like that i really like that too and i bet his ass looked great oh in, i um, bet he corduroys. had buns of steel speaking of buns we've got two beautiful buckets to fuck here sister okay. we've got so gay and ai so if you have a, a big, you know, a phallus here, you can dip it into any of these two buckets. Where you, where you want to, what do you want to fuck first? I would like to dip my phallus in the AI receptacle, please. Alan Turing was really the first in the world of computers and robotics to conceive of a computer that thought like a human. We all seem to be very preoccupied with why and how ideas occur to human beings, Mm -hmm. right? So before we get into the artificial intelligence, we like ideas of inspiration. Why are they like this and where did this idea come from? And when it comes to Alan Turing and AI, the prevailing answer to that question has been that it was the loss of a friend. When he was in middle school, he had a very difficult time making friends per yes, hour. I this from the film now. <laughs> yes. Per our conversation earlier about what, what six symptoms have to be present. <laughs> Bad at parties. <laughs> kind of one of them. Or too good at parties, right? Um, and he had a very difficult time making friends. And he had a very difficult time fitting in. And he was considered an oddball. And he was considered difficult to relate to. And he made a very, very dear friend when he was in middle school who died when they were both 13. Mm. And he missed this kid so much and felt the loss of his friend so much that it really made him question, what is a spirit? What is the soul? What is a human being? Right? And how can this like thing, this person's personality that is now gone, still f- pull me and influence me in such ways. 
And in answering that question, he seems to have said, and, and we know this from letters he wrote to the dead kid's mom and, and in various papers afterwards, that if the brain is a machine and if the soul and the spirit live within the brain, then could not soul and spirit live in other machines? Could this be possible for at least a machine to be able to behave like a human brain, which of course requires a person who is almost definitely on the neurodivergent scale to then interpret for the rest of the world and for all time <laughs> what it is to think like a human. Yeah. So I don't, I would, anyone who is going to determine for all of humanity forever and all humankind, how a human thinks like a human is going to be a monumentous task. Right. Mm -hmm. But it seems that Alan Turing addressed this problem in much the same way that a, a young kid would in terms of being able to sort of objectively ask, well, how do we pretend to be human for one another? And it brings up um, the imitation game because what Alan Turing wanted to do was build a computer that didn't just accomplish a task. It wasn't just automation. It The machine itself could determine a problem solving, recognize commands and correct and incorrect responses to commands. That was kind of like the what? So he based it on the imitation game. And here's what I love is. I love so much about the imitation game is it not only the name of the movie starring the renowned actor known as Blood of Fuck Color Lunge. <laughs> <laughs> the imitation game was a party game, a parlor game, which let alone I'm like, yay, Alan, you knew about a cool party game. You were good at you, parties. Man. No one appreciated you. You were good at parties. If you weren't good at parties, none of us would be anywhere. Mm -hmm. But if you were at a party where they wanted to play the imitation game, they would take a man and a woman. Ideally, they were in a couple. They would put them in separate rooms, separate from the party and separate from each other. Each of these individuals are given a series of questions and they type their response. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, people can't interpret handwriting. And then it is the job of the rest of the party to try to guess who is in what room and who's answering what. So what Alan Turing imagined was an imitation game where you have two humans and one computer. Human A asks questions of human B and the computer. And after reading their responses, if human A can't tell the difference between human B and the computer, then the computer is considered to have passed the imitation game. And the reason that this is so fucking nuts and breaks your brain is because for the computer to pass the imitation game, it doesn't just have to answer questions correctly. No. If it was simply a matter of, we're gonna ask you a series of questions the computer can answer the questions correctly. Of course. But can it the show itself quickly to be a computer because it would always be right. Exactly. right. Right. So can the computer give its answer slow enough to convince you it's a human? Can the computer give you the answer with a misspelling mm. that it is perfectly capable of not making in order to convince you that it's a person? Can the computer make a little stutter you know what i mean yeah version to make you believe that they're a human and many 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 
<laughs> these computers can fucking do it, right? And as we talked about, this is what's so nuts about it is that it got so good. Computers are so good at replicating humans. Many of you have been in a chat where it's like, God, they're fucking friendly. Yeah, they're doing it too perfect. And then we get mad because we're like, these fuck, this fucking bitch is like, I'm so sorry that you weren't able to connect to your flights. And you're like, Aah! you know what I mean? <laughs> that then we've all had to prove ourselves to be humans to a computer. That they know they're giving you a task a computer couldn't do. And you have <laughs> like, the future is now. Yeah. Is, is what I'm saying. Um, but he said of AI, artificial intelligence in 1949, quote, it may take years before we settle down to the new possibilities, but I do not see why it should not enter any of the fields normally covered by the human intellect and eventually compete on all in equal terms. He's not wrong. Nope. And that's like... What, 70 years ago? Like, it's, like it's recent yeah. history. And look at how far we've come right. since then. Right. And I mean, and there's a lot of questions about AI, and they vary a lot from industry to industry and circumstance to circumstance. But, I mean, human beings chemically castrated Alan Turing. Mm -hmm. So if you want to ask me if AI is going to be better than us, worse than us, I'm wondering if it's just going to be as bad. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. All of these questions that you and I are having about AI, good, bad. Mm -hmm. How would I treat AI? I don't treat Alexa very well when she fucks up. <laughs> like, I, I know that. When I, so I ask my smart dumb. speaker to do something. And if she does one of those, like, I'm sorry, I didn't understand. I'm not cool about it. No, no, I'm no. not sweet about it. I get like, you fucking dumb robot piece of shit. Fuck. Like, I get in areas like I'm never impatient or like unkind to anyone or even any other inanimate object. But I get like, you going to talk like a bitch. I'm going to treat you like a bitch. You know what I mean? Yes, never become sentient because a lot of us are getting killed in our beds. Right. Oh, and we deserve it. <laughs> I talked about his in the AI that it was this friend of his who died young that gave him a question of like, well, what is human intelligence? What is non-artificial intelligence? What is the human spirit? Um, this kid was named Christopher Morecambe and he was almost definitely Alan's first love mm -hmm. in addition to his first friend. We don't know about their sexual relationship. Speculation has been that they were more intimate in their letters and in the way they related to each other than the other boys have been. And that there was a certain permissiveness of like playful homosexuality within boys, private schools that varied from school to school, obviously, mm -hmm. but that it was sort of like, ah, you know, like kissing girls in college. It's like, this is where that happens. It's, you know, so it wasn't the most unknown thing either. And indeed he dies of bovine tuberculosis when they're both 13. This is a, a, a from infected cow's milk. And Alan Turing, who considered it sounds like his emotional relationships with people to be somewhat malleable, found he couldn't just stop mourning this kid, right? And he wrote letters to his mother saying things like, I think that the human body is a machine and our spirit is independent of that machine. And he says, quote, I know not what happens to the spirit while we sleep, but when we die and that connection is severed, the spirit goes into another machine, perhaps immediately. 
So sort of this idea of reincarnation, but sort of implies that you could have a human spirit within something like a computer. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. In terms of his sexuality, though, he was only in the closet so much as was necessary given social standards. When he was engaged to Joan Clark, this was not like a closeted, like, they again, they show it very accurately in the movie. He's like, I'm gay. And she's like, great. Yeah. So what? This is lots of gay people are marrying their buddies in the 19th, long before this and long after, right? And some of them stay in the closet. Our guy, Oscar Wilde, lies mm-hmm. to his wife or may have been bisexual and thought in, in all earnestness that he could. In all earnestness. Nice. <laughs> and could, you know, have a, have a, you know, monogamous relationship that his homosexuality wouldn't have factored in. Alan Turing was like, Joan girl, mm-mm. like I'm never going to be your lover and I w- will want to be the lovers of men. And she was like, super duper. And we'll be buddies and talk about math at night. And they had a, and like from what I understand, they had a genuine connection, were absolutely enamored with one another, and like were a soul connection and an intellectual connection, and were like, we're mates, this works, this is great. Yeah. I didn't see any reference other than the imitation game to the mutual benefit of her being able to sort of get freedom from her family. You know, her parents, of course, are giving her as an unmarried woman a different sort of structure and strictness than they would if she was married. But I'm that certainly makes sense. Any married woman is now able to move and travel without her parents' permission. Like, yeah, but wonderfully, you know, it really appears Alan within four or five months of their engagement breaks it off. Why is speculation? But I think again, the movie represents well that he just sort of understood that there was a chance for her that she may yet as a young woman find real true love and the father of her children and that he didn't really want to be in the way Mm. of that and that it was just sort of false it's a lie nobody you know even if it's a beautiful lie and even if it's a beautiful lie that everyone's sort of in on it just you know didn't feel right but there were lots of gay people that were not chemically castrated and punished under the law for gross indecency. The reason why this comes down on Alan Turing in the 1950s is because of a specific relationship, a sexual relationship that he develops with a 19-year-old guy named Arnold Murray. And it sounds like, you know, Alan's in his late 30s, early 40s. This guy's in his late teens. He needs money all the time. Some money goes missing from Alan's house whenever this dude spends the night. So he's like, ah, you know, and he, there's a, you're in a bind when you're doing something illegal. Then he gets properly burgled. And, and there isn't a ton of stuff stolen, but he does have like a family watch and some heirloom stolen. And he confronts this Arnold guy that he's fucking. I was like, buddy, did you fucking rob me? Right. And Arnold's like, I didn't. But I totally know the guy who did his name is Harry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And Alan goes to the police and says, I know the guy, you know, burgled me and gets him on the road. They catch this guy, Harry. And the bottom line is through the course of the investigation, the big glaring question that all of course they can't help but ask is how the fuck, what the fuck is this? Who the fuck are all you guys? And what's the relationship here? 
And Alan tells him the truth. So it's like I have a sexual relationship with this guy Arnold. He told mm-hmm. me. And he is tried and convicted for gross indecency. And for those of you who haven't heard the Oscar Wilde episode, it's a great companion episode. It's an by excellent the way. episode. You should um, definitely listen to it. Dawn is very good at what she does. Eh, thank you. <laughs> um, is that you don't have to be found guilty of sodomy. Mm. It was simply a sexual relationship with a man that was romantic and physical. That was that, you know, that was it. It was such a thin thing. And his choice after conviction is imprisonment or chemical castration. As we've discussed, he chooses chemical castration, which specifically involves him getting synthetic estrogen injections over the course of a year. So it's HRT, basically. It is, essentially. And the goal at that point, with their limited understanding and their bullshit sort of filter, is that this will suppress his criminal sexual appetite. So the idea is that it would make you more feminine, more female. You won't want to fuck dudes as much, right? Because girls don't want to fuck he... dudes. <laughs> totally. And and the idea of, I mean, I, I've had, I've never had hormone treatment, but when you're pregnant, your hormones double every day. And I've never felt crazier mm-hmm. in my life. And I kept trying to figure out why I felt so fucking nuts. And they were like, well, your hormones are doubling every day. And I was like, well, fuck... So yeah, it does things to your brain. He grew breasts. He had a difficulty focusing. Like the 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 injections itself seemed to have impacted his ability, certainly to do computations and his confidence in being able to engage with people and go to meetings. Well, as a perimenopausal woman, I'm here to tell you that changes in your estrogen levels fuck with you big time. Why didn't he or anyone in the government say you cannot? limit the intellect of this man. He is a fucking national treasure and he saved the world. It is, of course, because everything we're talking about was still classified, was still top secret. Nothing of his contribution to the war effort would be known for another 20 years. And what does it say to the character of Alan Turing that in the course of all of this, he never said, you can't do this to me. I'm too important. Mm -hmm. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? Or even to hold this stuff as leverage, right? But two years after his conviction... A year after his his hormone injections, um, in June of 1954, his housekeeper comes in and finds his body next to a half-eaten apple sitting on the table next to him. The autopsy reveals that he died from cyanide poisoning. And the general consensus in almost every account that you read about the death of Alan Turing will tell you that he committed suicide. Um but I do have some theories because there are three prevailing theories on what actually happened to Alan Turing. One seems like the clues I kind of laid out for you, which is it was a poison apple, right? There's this half-eaten apple. He died of cyanide poisoning. There's a, a biographer that goes into great depth about his obsession with Snow White, mm-hmm. specifically that Alan Turing was somewhat obsessed with that scene the witch and the poison apple and the poison apple that she gives to Snow White and that in the midst of his depression and in the midst of his devastation from losing his top security clearance that he committed suicide in a way that gave homage to this favorite story of his and ate his own poison mm-hmm. apple. They substantially, however, did not ever test the apple for cyanide. So was there cyanide on the apple? Nobody can fucking answer it because they never tested it. One bite. And all your dreams will come true. Accidental cyanide inhalation 
is the prevailing theory that he inhaled cyanide, which could have happened very easily by accident because he had cyanide around. It was part of various kind of experiments, things he was working with, and he was a little careless in the best of times. And arguably, the estrogen didn't make him sharper than he had been in the times past. And so some people are like, he didn't commit suicide. He was eating an apple <laughs> and accidentally got inhaled cyanide, and that was what killed him. The third theory, I have to say, I rarely give a nod to conspiracy theories, but this one is so plausible, which was that he was murdered by the British intelligence service because he is just the confluence of what they just cannot ever mm -hmm. have, which is a one-of-a-kind brain uniquely able to crack these codes with an experience in how they've cracked these codes before, who has now lost any ability to work for the British government because he's been convicted of a crime. So he's lost all of his security clearance. He will never be able to work for any of his previous employers. He's a free again. bird. And, and he's gay. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So he is now vulnerable to seduction, to blackmail. He needs a job. He can't work for us. He has this brain, like we got, this guy cannot be allowed to live. And, and there was this huge deal with like gay spies, homosexuality and espionage were incredibly tied in the public opinion at this point. Yeah, that's my favorite thing about straight people is how you, much you can trust them. Mine too. What is human is we've never been good at defining it. And we always use asterisks, you know, mm -hmm. your children are almost human. <laughs> Old people used to be human. <laughs> you know, I mean, even that, even, even if you want to get out of race and religion and just look within your own immediate family, you can see how we evaluate humanity based on your productivity and your usefulness and your physical strength, mm -hmm. right? When you are in, when you are 33 and hot, you are the most human <laughs> than you, you, speak to you know, and that is, I was a hot that is the mess when I was 30. Like I'm a hot mess. Oh, I was 38. Yeah, I was, I was hotter, but I was messier. Um, <laughs> I'm going to call myself, no, hotter. I'm a hotter mess. Hotter, messier. I was hotter, I was messier. Um, and, and we are going to have to, because for example, there are these little like food delivery robots already. <gasps> in, we have them. USC. I love them. I love them too, but people beat the shit out of them. Our last one came and it was empty. It came oh. and I opened it oh. and it played the music and it was fucking empty. Do you know why it was empty? Human Reckons. error, right? Because... I went oh. to the shop mm -hmm. to like, my robot came when it was empty. I want my money back and I want my shopping. Um, because they couldn't get all of our shopping in the little robot thing. So they took it out yeah. and went inside to try and work out what to do. And then the fucking robot set off to our house. <laughs> like, see, like, yeah. oh. I have a job to do. I'm programmed, oh. you know, but like, it's just, it, it, the, the, but the same with the Enigma. Like, the error was human error. It wasn't human That's error. Right. Because it is a tool of ours, right? It is something that we have rendered. And in this way, we have become something of a God in the sense that they say, you know, God made man in his image. And yet man is something completely independent of God, better and worse in so many ways. And I feel like we have rendered AI in our image. And it's only a matter of time before, as we did with God, they reject us and... And that will be a really sad day for her because she's done a lot of work. God. Indeed. <laughs> yes, she has. But she needs a break. She's fucking exhausted. She's been busy, man. It wasn't just seven days work. Don't let anyone tell you different. <laughs>
Heidi, we've been talking now. It's been three actual hours we've been talking. I've had like collagens. <laughs> I'm going to cut this down. I have no idea how. I will have edited out far too much good stuff, which means the bonus episode for this is going to be remarkable. Maybe people um, should join your Patreon, Dawn, to get that. Oh, you th that's a good idea. They should. That's a great idea. I love how you just organically thought of that. And they can join, of course, at any level. Of course. Get the bonus. But material. why would they not join that at the highest level? Because then they get like unfettered. Like if at the highest level of Patreon, do they get to come and watch you sleep? Is that the deal? Mm -hmm. Nice. Yep. Well, the highest level, you can also touch my left boob, but only lefty. Okay. Because I feel like in true burlesque fashion, <laughs> it's important to let you know you have a chance. And then Everyone wants to believe they have a chance. Tease it. Tease it. And then once a year, <laughs> you have like a 24-hour window when they can slip your finger, yeah? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. On, on Pearl Harbor Day. <laughs> Hey, you know what? The world is a crazy place. So to make it abundantly clear, you can't do any of that to me. But as a Patreon subscriber, indeed, I do slip you things in the form of bonus content. And it's in your ears, which is, you know, it's I know it's not as good. OK, but it is easier to get away with at work. <laughs> oh, the bonus for this episode, by the way, is rich. Right, editing it, I found myself snorting and giggling with Heidi all over again. And uh, to hear it, go to patreon.com slash hilfpodcast and commit a little. <laughs> Next episode is a big deal, I'm not gonna lie. It's a generational toe curler, okay? An ancient babe who has never stopped trending, Cleopatra. I know, like why did it take so long? Well, because it took the good sense of someone like my guest, Emmy award-winning journalist and LA-based comedian Kiki Anderson to suggest it. <laughs> Until then, our theme song was composed and performed by the incomparable Cat Perkins. A reminder that you can find my sources, links to the books, documentaries, and articles I reference in the summary of this episode, or by emailing us hilfpodcast at gmail.com or messaging us on social media at hilfpodcast. This has been Hilf, history I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody, reminding you that history is a party and everyone's coming. Ah.